Hello everybody, welcome to Kale is Trying. My name is Kale, and today I am still trying to understand the Christian response to really important, really major events that happen in the United States. This is going to be a re-release of an episode I did on my podcast Cross-Examination from two years ago. It is the first part of a series called Counting on Christians in a Crisis. But before I just launch into the me that existed two years ago, I wanted to start with some updates on some of the topics and ideas that are being covered in this episode, um, as well as just to give another preview or layout of what this series is all about. So originally this was recorded two years ago, and if you remember the summer of 2020, it was not the best of times. It was definitely closer to the worst of times. And I hadn't made an episode for a podcast in a long time uh, at that point. But the murder of George Floyd, the response to that murder, kind of created this bizarre environment in which many white Christians really disappointed me. And we started to see a blatant use of political power exercised to keep, to retain, to control the voting power that white churches represent in our country. So that's what was happening two years ago. And in some ways, a lot has changed. And in a lot of other ways, very little has changed. So I want to start by reviewing some of that stuff before we get into um, just a full throwback. So first, what happened two years ago after the murder of George Floyd, um, a couple of things happened. First, a lot of people took the concept of systemic racism and police brutality seriously. A lot of people really did buckle down and try to figure out, okay, 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 I'm listening now. That was horrific. That was traumatic. We all saw it. I need to do better. And that includes me. I put in a concerted effort to learn more. Uh, I have read several books over the last couple of years. I've been more intentional to watch films and TV shows um, from black creators to kind of understand other points of view better than I did before. And I know there's a lot of other people who did that too. That's great. There is also a lot of people who soon after the George Floyd murder dug in their heels and feels like they just didn't really attempt to make any change. They found ways to avoid actually facing the music um, after such a horrific event. So coming back to this two years later, as I re-listened to this episode, I was (laughs) kind of saddened to hear that most of what was being talked about two years ago is still completely relevant today because not enough has changed to make it irrelevant. I think we have some other crises that are commanding our attention and making us ask, what is the church's response to this and what 
maybe should it be. But the problem is still here. The problem is that white American Christianity still fights and struggles as if it is in the losing side of some competition, when in reality, it's not on the losing side of the competition. And that's what this episode is about. This series of Counting on Christians in a Crisis asks us to consider what it means to look at a white American Christian collective and put it up against any any given crisis, really, and to really ask it, are you going to like do something or are you going to be complicit with the injustices that are happening around us? That's what this is about. And so there are three parts to this. And this is the first part, which is a history and victimhood in which we'll talk about how white American Christianity um, tells itself a story that it is always under attack, that it is always on the losing side, that it is always the victim in this country, and how it ultimately ignores the reality that it flexes and exercises more power than any other religious force and any other political force in our country today. This is most obvious in the recent Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, a, a push made by conservative Christians for several decades after they felt like they had really lost some ground when Roe v. Wade was decided in the 70s. We have a Supreme Court with a six conservative majority over the three liberals, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. And you have decisions being made that go against what the majority of Americans would want, but it's being done because of different political systems that allow a small vocal group to kind of control everything else as it goes. That's kind of what today's about, and it's kind of what the rest of this whole series is going to be about. Part two, which will come out next, obviously, uh, is about false idols and false prophets. That is going to uh, feature a lot of what happens when Christians felt like they were weak and where do they turn to for strength. And it is not to God... (laughs) (laughs) In that case. Um, And then part three, which will be called the Great Decommission, which is to reevaluate what it is Christians think they're supposed to be doing in the world and what they probably should be doing in the world. So we'll be starting in just a moment, but I wanted to clarify just a few more things before we get started. When I recorded this two years ago, I used a few word choices that certainly unveiled, maybe betrayed, uh, a lot of the privileges that I experience as a white male Christian. I use the word we a lot in this episode. And when I say we, I often just mean the church, as if every single church is the same in America. I say we talking about America in general, as if every American is the same. And so I want to clarify that as we start off. When I say we, and when I talk about the church, I don't mean individual people, even though I know a lot of individual people that 
this would apply to as we go through this episode. I mean it about the larger currents and movements of a Christian organization. There's a lot of, of moving about and power that flows through organized Christianity, especially those held by large, prominently white denominations in our country. So when I say we, or when I say the church, that's what I'm talking about. I also use we in a historical sense. And and usually when I'm saying we, I'm talking about European colonists who then become the founding fathers, who become what white people always identify with like American. So that is, those are phrases that I didn't think about two years ago. They're phrases I realize are, are very much rooted in, uh, an assumed normalcy of whiteness. And that, that does (laughs) reveal a high degree of privilege for me. So my apologies for that, but that's, what's going to be going on here. The other thing that, um, I talk about early on is I talk about the police because this is about, or the the catalyst of this was the murder of George Floyd. I have a small little bit in the beginning where I talk about how police are supposed to be there to protect us. And that's how it always seems like it should be. And it is what it should be, but it's also something that I spoke of in some degree of ignorance. Um, much of the reading I've done over the last couple of years um, reinforced an idea that I didn't fully comprehend two years ago, which is that the difference between how certain communities are policed is extreme. The difference is staggering. And so I just want to point out when I say we always count on the police, uh, certain people always count on the police. And probably a better way to talk about it in this episode is white people were shocked when Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd because a lot of white people in America live on the assumption that the police will work for them and do the right thing. And that's not always the case and not every American sees it that way. So I wanted to point out that I am aware of that as well. (laughs) Um... And I will have a few more things to add at the end of this episode. So do stick around toward the end because I will have some stuff on the back end that kind of look at some other modern movements that the Christian political force has been brought into over the last two years. But this is way too much of an intro. I'm already at 11 minutes. We need to get going. Uh, So I'm going to be quiet. And here we go. Here's my problem. A week ago, a video came out that showed a man lying on the ground. His hands were cuffed behind him and a police officer was kneeling on his neck and he stayed there for over eight minutes. The man dies because someone knelt on his neck for over eight minutes. Instantly, people are upset. They should be, because we count on our police officers to help people. That's what it should be. You can go back to when you were a kid and you first saw the cartoons. It was like, and now we're going to meet Officer so-and-so. And then you meet him and it's like, hey, Timmy, anytime you need help, you just call 911 and we're going to be here. And we have, we try our best to encourage 
people as they grow, like, the police are our friends, they are going to protect us, they're going to help us. But here's the problem. Somehow the reality of our world is not that. And there are a lot of reasons that other voices can speak to better than I can, but here's what becomes simple. And something that I've been saying in my post recently, and I've been trying to tell people when I talk to them, police brutality is not a new issue. And it's an issue that people have been talking about and trying to bring attention to for a very long time. I always point out the two most recent, like, big movements for this, which is in 2013 is when Black Lives Matter became a thing. And there is nobody in the United States who doesn't know about Black Lives Matter. Everyone knows about it. And that was seven years ago. I can go a little bit more recent and talk about Colin Kaepernick, who started kneeling during the national anthem at his football games to bring attention to police brutality. That was four years ago, and there's not a single person in this country that doesn't know about it. So this is crucial to me. People knew about this issue. They knew it was a problem. They knew that people had been trying to draw our focus, draw our energies, and say, there's a problem with police brutality. Black men are being victimized. They are being abused. They are being killed. And we need to do something about it. And so what happened last week with George Floyd was a very clear picture of all of the things that people have been telling us for four and seven years. And those are just the most recent examples. This is an issue that goes way back. You can go back, you know, I think of the 80s. I think of Public Enemy coming out. 911 is a joke. And I think about Fight the Power. And I think about, you know, these great artists who have been telling us for decades that there is a problem. So now we see the problem in action. We see a man die But what's weird to me is now, a week later, I'm looking around and I have to ask the question, why is there not universal condemnation from the church? Because what I'm seeing right now is there are a lot of people who say, oh, it breaks my heart. Oh, this shouldn't happen. Oh, I'm going to pull this Martin Luther King quote and post it and I've seen the term virtue signaling showing up a lot I don't have a problem with virtue signaling not not personally I absolutely understand why people would be annoyed by it it's just the whole entire concept like oh so what you're trying to show that you have virtues like I know that's overly simplistic but it's like I, I want to do those things too I want to put out there and say, oh, people, are you watching? We can do better than this. Where is our virtue? So, fine, I get it. But then the big development, which is not that a man died. The big development seemed to start after the protests. So George Floyd dies. It takes a few days before the officers are arrested. And in the meantime, people start staging protests. And as the protests start to happen, things get out of control. They become aggressive. There are people spray painting buildings. There are people breaking windows. There are people setting fires. So the first one in Minneapolis, they gathered peacefully at the spot where George Floyd dies. And then they 
March or is it a different group? It's foggy. That's the biggest problem right now. Everything is foggy. It's hard to keep track and people seem convicted to know exactly what happens. But what we do know is a group goes to a police precinct and eventually all the people in the precinct leave and it is raided and set on fire. There is a rage about this injustice that a man is dead before he's charged, before there's a trial, before any of this. But once you introduce aggression into this narrative, that's when I started to see a big shift in how Christians were responding. And how white people in general. But this is a podcast for curious Christians, not necessarily white people who are trying to figure things out. So I'm trying to keep it on the Christian track for now. So why is there not universal condemnation? Here's what I'm seeing now. What I'm seeing now is people are, are and they've been posting nonstop. I love seeing it. I love seeing that people are posting things and they're trying to bring awareness. And there are people trying their darndest to show to people this is what has been talked about for years and we didn't listen. This is why people are angry, but we didn't listen. This is what we should be doing now, but nobody listened. Well, in response to that, I'm seeing a few other things. And the thing that set me off yesterday, as it did for a lot of Christians, is President Trump goes to the church across the street from the White House and has his picture taken as he holds a Bible. If you've seen the picture, I don't think it matters which political side you're on. It's a weird picture. He's holding the Bible in a weird way. He looks grumpy as ever. But a lot of people are upset and they're saying, oh my goodness, he is just using religion to touch, to to get in touch with his base, to, to rally his supporters because Trump inexplicably seems to have the support of so many Christians. We'll talk about that during our false idols and false prophets episode next time. But what have I seen? People have posted and said, that's not okay, the way the president's doing that. And what I've seen people say is like, hey, he's putting God first and we need God right now. And I've seen more thoughts and prayers happening, like more of those phrases. And then the one that irritates me for a different reason are the people who completely redirect outrage to a completely separate issue. I can't believe we're doing this. The man was a criminal. What about unborn babies being killed? And so while the country's on fire because of systemic racism and police brutality, some people stick to the same issues they always stick to. How did we get here? There's a video of a man dying, and we've been warned about it for years, and there are some Christians who don't seem to care at all. Now, they would never say that, obviously. They would say, I'm not racist. They would say, I'm not prejudiced. I'm here. They'd say, all lives matter and not understand why that's a problem. We'll talk about that another time, too. So here's what I think is going on. American Christianity has a problem. And the problem is that it is very accustomed to playing the victim. Christianity in America has played the victim for a very, very long time. And that's what I want to explore for the rest of this episode.
the history and the victimhood. So let's be honest about the, the history of Christianity. As someone who grew up in the church, I heard this kind of stuff all the time. The church was persecuted, which is not wrong. It's not that they weren't. It's a true statement. But we spend a lot of time talking about it. The Romans throwing Christians into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. Temples being torn down. People being killed for their beliefs. We talk a lot about martyrs. I became a teenager. I was in like middle school getting into high school in the 90s when DC Talks Jesus Freak came out. And with it came the uh, DC Talks sponsored Book of Martyrs. Oh my goodness, I read so much about that all through high school. We were told very clearly growing up in the church that the world is hostile towards you, the church. As someone who grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist, the other story we heard a lot was about the Waldensies, a group of people who would like secretly pass around Bible texts and they kept the word alive during a time when it basically was close to going extinct. So in our, our history of Christianity, there's a lot built into it that we are taught all the time that Christianity is always under threat. People don't want it. They're trying to eliminate you. What we don't get talked, told about near as often, which is also historically accurate, is the other side of Christianity throughout history. We don't talk about how Christians have excluded different groups. We don't talk about how people have wielded Christianity as a force of control over massive populations for centuries. And we don't talk about the violence that Christians have done. Now, some people do. Usually when people argue against Christianity, they're the ones who bring it up. Like, how are you in a religion that says it cares about love, but you are also in that same religion that's responsible for the Crusades? Good question, good point, good argument. It's important to understand that. Christianity has as complex of a history as any individual human being. There is good in it and there is bad in it. It has had rough times, and it's had prosperous times. It has had its ups and downs. It's played every role you can possibly imagine. So then we come to the United States. And the story of American Christianity takes on a little bit of a different role. Not just that we have been persecuted and there have been martyrs, but when pilgrims come to the United States... American Christians quickly assert that it means that the United States is a Christian nation and that it was founded as a Christian nation, that that's who we are at our core as Americans is we are Christians and God wanted us here and God was ready to have us be his light to the world. As far as I know... Jesus told everyone to be the light in the world, not just America. But because Christians have kind of misconstrued the origins in our country, yeah, there were people who came here because they had religious persecution in Europe. Absolutely, that existed, that happened. But it's not the only narrative. 
So what happens when you get to the U.S. is you have Christianity take a very different role. People can talk about the persecution element. They can talk about the threat to the religion. But once America happens, it seems like the dominant use of religion is completely different. Because now, the people who have settled in America, the people who are creating this new country, the ones who are utilizing slave labor, the ones who are committing genocide against Native Americans, the ones who are completely throwing this continent into an upheaval, they're Christians. And they used the Bible and they used Christianity to keep and hang on to their power. Now, some of those lines and quotes, they're beautiful, they're inspiring, and a lot of patriotic Americans, especially ones who love those early American years, love to lean on those. But there's a reality here where, yeah, when slavery was a thing, people used the Bible to justify it. When we were kicking people off of their native lands, we would use the Bible to justify that. As a teacher, I love working with uh, the play The Crucible with my students because The Crucible is a wonderful example of this. Because The Crucible is this idea like something is wrong and it shows how easy it is for people to manipulate reality bring in the power of the church and completely subdue and crush anyone that you need to get rid of. And that's stuff that happened in this country, and we need to admit that it happened in this country. But we usually don't. Because again, this is not the stuff that people growing up in the church get talked about a lot. Like, we don't have a moment growing up as a Christian where we say, hey, just so you know, we love Jesus, Jesus loves us, but... People have used the Bible in some terrible ways. Here's some terrible ways that people have used the Bible that might hit really close to home, but we need to talk about it. We need to talk about why that's not okay and why that's not right. That's not a part of growing up as a Christian, or at least it wasn't for me. And I don't think it is for most Americans. Somehow along the way, the messages of love and grace and mercy were completely done away with. And something else took its place. Somehow, Christians went from much older times being the ones persecuted to being the ones who became oppressors of other people. They rose to power and they kept the title of Christian. And then when things would not, when things would not go well, they would say, hey, you're going to go against God on this one? Now, they might not have said it that plainly. No one ever does. That's how rhetoric works, right? Is nobody is so blatant that you could easily spot and be like, oh, that's evil. But it is what we do. And it's what we have done. We have used Christianity as a response to fear in many cases. So when the colonists first showed up, I can understand to some extent the use of religion to kind of steamroll over things. You're in a brand new country. There are people out there you don't understand. You don't understand their language. You don't understand the customs. It's completely foreign to you. You're surrounded by wilderness and who knows what kind of noises in the middle of the night. You are going to turn to an authority, to a source of power. I don't fault people for their superstition. Not really. 
I only fault the current us for not calling it superstition. When you look at witch trials, I think most modern people would agree, oh, those were a bad idea. And we can agree on that. But here's the deal. Some of the things that were done under a Christian flag, we have celebrated for centuries without taking a good, hard look at what's really going on. I didn't understand this until I started student teaching for the first time. And for the first time, Columbus Day came around and no one was saying, hey, yay, Columbus. Instead, people were like, oh, Columbus, you mean the guy who's responsible for opening up the transatlantic slave trade? And I said, Burr? what are you talking about? Because my education did not talk about Columbus in such ways. I think when we're honest about how we got to where we are, we need to recognize that we haven't even collectively tried to be honest about our history until very recently. And not all of us are on board with it either. I, I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday, but it is one of the easiest ones to get sucked into a weird debate because what we understand now about colonialism is that a group of people showed up and kicked people out of their house. They kicked them off their land. We devastated their population with disease, a lot of times intentionally. We made deals with them and we broke deals with them. That's the story of starting the United States of America. But Thanksgiving has woven its way into our collective national consciousness as peace and love and understanding of each other. And I think that's really important to remember right now because right now part of the discussion and debate that's happening is that there are people who are saying, I'm not racist, I see no color, everything's fine. That doesn't help at all. Just like it doesn't help to deny Native American genocide because you like the picture of pilgrims and Indians, air quotes, sitting around for Thanksgiving. We celebrate colonialism in America. We celebrate the idea that white Europeans could come to a country that was inhabited and conquered it. And maybe back a ways, we didn't have the way to think about these in new ways. I tell people all the time, when I was growing up, we were not talking about colonialism in bad ways. I would still play cowboys and Indians when I was a kid because that's what my parents played and their grandparents played and that got passed down to me. They did, there was not a voice that was clear enough and prominent enough to tell us why that could be problematic and wrong. But we're at a point now where people are telling us and we should recognize. So why aren't we? That's still the question. Why aren't Christians universally condemning what's going on? So where are we now? We live in the era of culture wars right now. The United States loves being the United States. It thinks it's better than almost everywhere. And of course, that's a generalization. But also, that is what our current president ran on. That was his message. It was, we're going to make America great again. It was America first. It was our people are more important than other people. 
That was the message. That's why when refugees come to our borders, he has not been like, hey, you're hurting and you're struggling and you're scared and you need help. Come on in. Obviously, he has not done that. Something has happened and we have become chauvinistic in our culture. And when you tie that into Christianity, it becomes very unappealing. Somehow, throughout the 20th century, Christians have felt that they've been losing their grip on society. And I do mean losing their grip because the United States was in the Christian grip for its entire history. And I would argue it still is to a large extent. I think what happened is we got to a point in American history where if you were a white Christian and you were living in prosperity, all you wanted to all you wanted to do was conserve that world. And when I think about some older generations, especially coming out of like out of the depression, out of World War II, and they get this giant economic boom that takes place in the 50s and beyond. And there's all this wonderful, like, hey, things are going well and they're going well for us. Yay, America, we got it. But what happens? We get to the 60s, Vietnam happens, the civil rights movement happens. New voices are heard. Voices that challenge the American narrative and challenge its identity and says it's not been as great as you think it is. It is not equal for all of us. You say that this is an amazing, wonderful country. I say this is the country that has wrecked everything for me. And those are the people who wanted more rights. Those are the people who wanted to come forward and say, what about me? Whether it was students saying, hey, we don't need to go to another country and fight a war that I don't believe in. That was an introduction to new voices. And of course, the voices that say, it's been 100 years since slavery ended and we do not have the same rights as you still. And here's what happens. When you introduce new voices to the narrative, it's very difficult to maintain control of a single story. The story of the United States as a God-loving, God-fearing country becomes complicated when the other narratives that come out is these God-loving, God-fearing people put me in chains and beat me and treated me like an animal and they did it while holding a Bible. That narrative is damaged when you point out You thought that this was your God-given land and you thought it was okay to hand out blankets with smallpox to eradicate a population of people who had been here for centuries. It destroys the narrative when you hear more voices. That's dangerous for the people in control. It's dangerous for the people in power because if you can control the story, you can control everything. Words matter. Stories matter. These narratives matter. But those narratives are being shaken. And with those narratives being shaken, people's identity are being shaken. I think what's happened for Christians is their identity is shaken in a weird way because for them, America has still been prosperous. 
And now they're hearing more voices. And you know what? Some of those voices do not have the same beliefs as them. And some of those voices are saying there are some things that are okay. And Christians have spent forever saying it's not okay. I really like movies. And I think film history is fascinating. It wasn't until 1968 that we got movie ratings. And what happened before 1968 is if you were going to put something in a movie, the studio had to check off on it. And so that's why before the 60s, you never had a sex scene. That's why people always smoked. (laughs) It was like, it was a stand-in for, we totally got it on. But they couldn't show it because no studio would check off on it because the rest of the culture at that point, conservative Christians would be like, no, you can't do it. 1968 said, you know what? You can put whatever you want in your film, but just so you know, we're going to tell people that when you put this movie out, we're going to put a big X on it, and it's going to be rated X because it's going to be too violent and too vulgar or too sexy. And people were willing to put their art and their stories and their voices into theaters without the usual filters. That's just one example. There's a lot of ways that people have democratized information. As you keep moving forward, especially by the time you get to the 90s and into the 2000s, you bring the internet into that, you cannot stop the voices anymore. They're everywhere. And I think that's why we see so much change in the last couple of decades. Same-sex marriage becomes legal. Why? Because LGBT people have a voice. And they can express themselves and say, this is what life is like for us. And we are here and you are making life so hard for us. Why can't we just marry a person? And it changes. There's a lot of situations like that. And I think ultimately it makes a lot of Christians very uncomfortable. And I think what it does psychologically is it probably puts them back in the spot where they feel like they are the victim again, the spot where they are being persecuted somehow. My favorite thing about all of this, of course, is Starbucks cups, because there could not be a dumber thing for Christians to get upset about. I'm upset that when I go to get my frou-frou coffee drink from this giant corporation, they don't say Merry Christmas to me anymore. Who cares? I don't expect people to say Merry Christmas to me. That is a privilege. That is a privilege of being a part of the dominant religion of this country that for the entire existence of this country has said, your religion matters. And it was the only religion that mattered, for the most part. When people changed to happy holidays, it wasn't because they were against Christians. It's because they finally heard enough voices and heard enough stories like, oh, yeah, there's lots of holidays that happen right now. I should probably not hold one religion over another. That's equality, which I'm pretty sure is an American value. So we have these weird things that Christians get very upset about. When same-sex marriage is made legal, that's so different from Christians. They're like, whoa, whoa, Adam and Eve and man and woman. And it's a different story. It's a different story from another group of people who never said that they believed the same thing that you did. But Christians were very used to running the show. 
they had the dominant voice, and now there are new voices. I think what happens when you start getting more and more voices, when we truly allow people to choose, which by the way is absolutely something Christians want for themselves. We say it all the time in our, ser- in our sermons that God gave people the freedom of choice. So we want freedom. And in America, we want freedom. But I think when Christians start to allow everybody to have freedom, all of a sudden they have to really examine what it is they really love what it is they really support. And somehow, that has become the thing they love the most is feeling right and feeling victimized. Feeling like, oh, dang, you don't, I'm not special like I was. Now, if, we, if, if all of Christianity was just a single person, I would absolutely understand that this would probably trigger somebody's trauma. Like, oh my goodness, when I was little, they tried to feed me to lions. And then they took everything I believed and they were going to burn it all. Oh my goodness. And then at one point, I had to hide in the woods to keep what I believe safe. And then at one point, I was living in England and my religion didn't match up with the king's religion. So I left. I sailed thousands of miles miles away to restore and keep my religion. And now someone's going to take it again? Like if it was all one person, I could understand the trauma. But here's what's happened instead. Somehow, Christians took power in this country. And they never really felt like they had it. Instead, they are always on the lookout, scared, just like the early colonists who were ready to burn some witches, scared that the forces of evil would overtake them. And so when someone says a woman has a right to choose, they say, don't you dare, because if we were in charge, we wouldn't allow that. And if someone says, I'm in love with a man, they say, but you're a man. No, not okay. Because they wouldn't have let it happen. It doesn't, it doesn't always align with their belief system. And it's fine that it doesn't align with their belief system. But the thing is, there's nothing that says that Christians have to have a chokehold on all things true. We're told as Christians to love everybody. We're told as Christians to spread the gospel, the good news that the what, what you do, the way you try to prove yourself, the way you try to uh, make yourself worthy to God, you don't have to do that. You're worthy because you're a human being that Jesus already died for. So you don't have to be controlling the world. You take that same love and grace and mercy and understanding that Christ had and you take it to people and you share it with them. Somehow, we miss that. There's a lot of biblical figures who complicate it, for sure. You'll see Paul write about expelling the immoral brother. So you get the sense like, well, if I see something wrong, I got to get rid of it. Or maybe you're reading Old Testament stuff that says, hey, those people do not believe the right way. Go kill all of them. 
But those are not the words of Jesus. Somehow in our culture, we have made Christianity strangely violent. I'm going to share one of my least favorite songs as I wrap up here. And I hear it sung in in children's Bible study classes, and it kind of makes me want to throw up. And the song is, We Are Soldiers in the Army. We have to fight, although we have to die. We have to hold up the blood-stained banner. We have to hold it up until we die. I hate that song. I hate it. There's another one that keeps the same militaristic imagery. It slightly changes on lyrics. Like some people say, I will never, or I can't. But either way, the idea is, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I don't know why Christians like to embrace military imagery for a religion that was created by Jesus, a man who was so against violence that when people came to literally kill him, He had to tell his own followers, put your sword away. What the heck do you think you're doing? Get out of here. Jesus was passive when it came to that. He was vocal in the face of injustice. When something was truly wrong, he was ready to fight for it, but he didn't actually fight. And when people came for him, he said, I'm the man. And they took him and they beat him and they rigged the courts for it. They drug him out to a hill. They crucified him. He died. And in a strange way, of course he did. This is the guy who told people, if someone hits you, you turn the other cheek and you let him hit you again. Because when you show people injustice, they will recognize it. I think Christians have had some injustices done to them throughout history. But I think what we're forgetting is that Jesus never asked us to take over the world. He never asked us to have a militaristic ruling over everything to make everybody believe the same thing we do. He said, share the gospel. Tell people they're enough. Show them love. He tells Peter, take care of my sheep. And he tells us all, whatever you do to the least of these, you do that to me. I don't know why more Christians aren't condemning the death of George Floyd. I think it's completely out of sync with the life of Christ to sit by and try to 
dodge the issue or say we're not the problem or point to someone else and say, well, they're the problem because they're getting violent and aggressive because Jesus did not split hairs like like that. Instead, as Christians, we need to re-examine our history. Remember that we were once in the minority, that we were persecuted, that we were struggling for our rights. And we need to extend the strength and the compassion to those that still don't have those rights. That was the original recording from two years ago. And as I said at the beginning of this episode, a lot has changed and also a lot has not changed so far in this country. Christians are still playing victim. They are still fighting. They are still aggressive. Two years after Donald Trump lost the presidential election, he is still very popular among Christians. A lot of Christians hold him and the Bible and the cross together. We'll talk more about that in episode two of this series. But I wanted to finish today's episode by by looking at a few ways that Christians still exert their power to continue to dispel this myth that Christians are losing in some way or that, that Christians need saving. So I talked a lot about some history elements in this episode, the, the necessity to look back and be honest about our history. And if you've paid attention at all in the last two years, um, that history is very much under attack by political forces and also by Christian forces. Because a lot of times what we're finding is those are similar things. So you've had a lot of discussion, you've had a lot of elections fought over a concept of critical race theory, a super academic form of study that is not being taught in any <laughs> any school, any elementary or high school in the country. But uh, it is being talked about extensively by governors and congresspeople and senators and undoubtedly will be talked about in 2024 for the next presidential election. Because while I'm discussing things in this episode, like we need to be honest about our history, uh, a lot of people are fighting against that type of honesty. They don't want honesty about history because it's hard, because it's complicated, because it's not easy to look back into one's history and admit that an identity that you have or an identity that you loved is also kind of gross sometimes. There's an insecurity at play there. And the fight against critical race theory, the fight against wokeness, um, these are examples of how certain types of rhetoric have really worked their way into a lot of conservative uh, white Christian talking points and culture And it has created, unfortunately, another large group of Christians who are not interested in looking at the plight of people that are not them. Speaking of which, I mentioned Roe v. Wade at the beginning of this episode and in the last episode. And that is, of course, another huge example of Christians wielding their political power to create an environment around them that they want, whether or not everybody else in the country wants it or not. 
The decision to send the abortion question back to states is basically saying states with more conservative Christians, you are going to get to have your way. That's just the way it's going to be. And the people in your state who might need this, who might benefit from it, who might have a healthier life because of it, uh, you don't have to make that an option for them. Christians are going to have a lot of work to do if they are going to show that they actually are loving people. Because with the result of the Dobbs decision comes with it uh, an obligation. An obligation to Christian churches that have been saying for decades we shouldn't have abortion and at the same time saying we should not have welfare systems or we should restrict them. So now is a time in a lot of these states where abortion is now illegal Christians need to step up and say, we are going to take care of the poor in our community. And I hope they do. That'd be amazing. It would be amazing if the weird political manipulation of people like Mitch McConnell somehow resulted in a more loving Christian community. How weird would that be? I'm not optimistic about that, but it is something that Christians are now, you know, You should be doing that. You have created, through decades of activism, an environment that is more hostile to poor people. And it's up to you to take care of them. It's up to you. And if you don't believe that, then you're not reading your Bible. So, uh, another thing where Christians are not interested in the plights of others. Recently, a Supreme Court decision uh, said that it was okay for a football coach to kneel and pray on the football field after a game. And I saw a political cartoon that sums up this weird hypocrisy. Of course, it was never illegal, technically, for Colin Kaepernick to kneel in protest of police brutality. But you'll notice the rhetoric around Kaepernick was always, oh, he's not being patriotic. He is dishonoring the military. A lot of people put a lot of effort in to make it so Colin Kaepernick's message was obscured immediately. But what happens when it's a football coach who is a Christian who is kneeling specifically to pray and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can do that. And again, I'm just pointing out, like we are not living in a country where Christians are under attack. If nothing else, we are in a country where currently a lot of Christian goals are being accomplished. And my concern is that these Christian goals are not things that will be extended to other people that are not like them. I cannot imagine Christians being okay with a Supreme Court decision if the person who took that case to the Supreme Court was a Muslim who wanted to pray at the end of a football game, laying out a mat and bowing down. I think there would be a completely different thing. But because it's a Christian coach, I don't think anyone has a problem with that. Finally, what we're looking at moving forward is we're going to see a lot more activity happening in courts, in the legal system, And this is the final thing that concerns me with the way that white American Christians are working in the U.S. today. I mentioned just a little bit ago that for all the Christians who have been fighting 
for pro-life legal structures, that there's an obligation to those same Christians that if you're going to take away the options of people who usually get abortions because of the financial cost, if you're going to take that away from people, it rests on your shoulders to make sure that they have everything they need to raise a child in an environment that will help them thrive and be healthy. But my concern is that a legal victory for Christians will be the extent of their dedication to this issue. As I also mentioned, a lot of the people who are pro-life are also anti-social safety net. A lot of people who are very, very against abortion are also very, very against helping poor people. And this is maybe a time to point out again, like I get, these are the larger trends in our country. Individuals are individuals. Individual churches are individual churches. I know a lot of churches do contribute money to help people, but we need more than that. And my concern is that with Christians making gains in the legal systems to support the things that they've always wanted for themselves, that they will not follow up on their Christ given directive to take care of those most in need. I'm afraid that now that it is illegal in many states to have an abortion, that Christians will fail to recognize that they have an obligation to help those people who will be giving birth to children in environments that are probably not good for children. Time will tell. Roe was only overturned about a month ago, but we're already seeing a lot of major problems with that. This is a crisis, and Christians can't play a victim of culture wars at this point because they are reshaping this country very aggressively. And if it's supposed to be a Christian nation, as many Christians like to claim, then it needs to be the most gracious the most generous nation on the planet. It should have a poverty rate of zero if this is a Christian nation. Because that's what the Bible asks Christians to do. In the next episode, we will talk about false idols, false prophets. We will talk about what happens when Christians continue to believe the idea that they are under attack and who they will turn to for their power and for their protection. For now, thank you so much for listening to this old episode with a few new bits in it. Uh, I really appreciate it. And until next time, farewell, good people.